Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. I'm here outside the Royal Society in London. It's one of the oldest scientific societies in the world, and it's set in central London in a gorgeous Georgian building. That's Natasha Loder, the Economist's health editor. We sent Natasha out on a day trip to record this week's episode. And today, I'm here to see the Summer Science Festival, an exhibition that traces back hundreds of years, and it's going to be packed full of scientists who've brought all their exhibits to show and tell about what the work they're doing is all about, and I can't wait to get in there. The Royal Society is one of the world's most prestigious scientific academies, with a membership that reads like a who's who of scientific accomplishment over the past 300 or so years. And the exhibition they put on every summer is a chance for the rest of us to get a taste of science at the cutting edge, a chance to see, touch and understand things that are normally kept hidden behind laboratory doors. It's the perfect playground for children and adults, not to mention science journalists. Natasha will take us inside to explore some unexpected ways that researchers are working to improve human health. She'll pick up a pair of drumsticks with Clem Burke from the rock band Blondie. Do you notice a difference in your mental health when you're drumming regularly? My mental health? Well, yes. For sure. I'd probably be a serial killer if I didn't play drums. (laughs) She'll meet the people using an out-of-this-world instrument to probe deep inside the human body. Which one's forward? (laughs) (laughs) And she'll get a little more exposure than she bargained for, all in the name of research. I'm not sure I want my ear on the internet, but there you go. I'm Gilad Amit, the Economist science correspondent, standing in for Alok Jha. And this is Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. So, joining me to talk about all of that is Natasha Loder. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Gilad. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I understand for this week's show, you went on a trip down the road from the office to the Royal Society to see their summer exhibition. Tell me about what you saw there. Well, look, if you are an art lover, you'd like art festivals. And as a lover of science, I love science festivals. And this wonderful event attracts a wide range of fascinating scientists in all disciplines, sometimes quite quirky stuff. I always learn something new. You can turn a corner and find something on zebrafish and how they help us understand the genetics of mental health, or something on the sights and smells and sensations of volcanic eruptions and how they can help us forecast seismic events. But I wanted to bring you three of the research projects that I thought were the most fun while I was there. It was all very interactive. So Gilad, I thought I would play you a sound from each of those studies. And can you guess what the researchers made me do? Okay, I'm game in theory. So imagine Wembley, this is your moment. (laughs) 
Okay, so I'm hearing some very professional level drumming there, I think. Uh, is this something to test acoustic layouts to see how sounds sound in different rooms? Well, let's see if you're right. This is what Alicia, one of our producers, made me do. Natasha, what are you doing right now? I am sitting in front of a drum kit. Uh, I have been forced here against my will. So try and hit as many drums as you can within 10 seconds. That's three seconds. Ten seconds. Go. Great. Five. So Clem does that for about two hours. Okay, that is pretty energetic. Okay, I got the drums right at least. Tell me, what's this research project all about? So this story started out with Marcus Smith, a researcher at the University of Chichester, wanting to learn more about the physicality of drumming. And he managed to get Clem Burke, the drummer of the rock band Blondie, to get involved. I spoke to both Marcus and to Clem at the exhibition, and I was even given a personal drumming performance by Clem himself. Hi, this is Clem Burke. I am the drummer with Blondie. And we began doing that uh, quite some time ago. I think we're well over 40 years. I was uh, about 18 years old when we started the group. I'm going to be 69 soon. So it's interesting running into you here. Why would a rocker like you hang out at a science festival? Well, I am the namesake beginning back well over 15 years ago plus of the Klemberg Drumming Project, which is a study of the science of drumming, essentially, uh, the, the mental aspects of it, the physical aspects of it. Tell me a little bit about the effect that drumming has on you when you're in the zone. Well, I mean, there's the endorphin rush of any kind of physical aerobic exercise, so there's that. There's the heart and when you're drumming at a certain uh, pace, you're using your oxygen levels, your heart rate. There's more to it than having a beer and walking on stage. You have to be physically prepared. And I realized a long time ago, if I wanted to keep doing what I do, I'd have to kind of be fit enough to do it. Do you notice a difference in your mental health when you're drumming regularly? My mental health? Well, yes. I'd... For sure. I'd probably be a serial killer if I didn't play drums. <laughs> That's a joke. I'm Marcus Smith. I'm a professor of applied sport and exercise science at the University of Chichester. Back in the day when I was an adolescent, Blondie, Debbie Harry was an icon. And uh, I first bought a Blondie single, their first ever one as a teenager, and then saw Clem play live for the first time in 1980. And... As an exercise scientist, I developed a model of how to understand Olympic boxers because I'd spent the last 20 years working with the Olympic boxing team and said to Clem, can we apply this model to you as a drummer on tour because it must be really demanding. And I wrote a letter and didn't think anything more of it and then Clem got back in contact and said, yeah, let's meet up. So we met at Wembley Arena in 1999 and did the first study looking at the physical demands of drumming live using a heart rate monitor and what's set off as a one-off study has developed over the last 23 years or so into this incredible scientific group known as the Klemberg Drumming Project. The whole of the Klemberg Drumming Project is based on the song Dreaming. The drums on it are spectacular. Yes, we, we 
Marcus was telling us that the first time he heard you drumming was a song called Dreaming. Could you give us a quick go of that song so we can listen? Yeah, I suppose I could do that. Yeah, why not? your latest piece of research what exactly did you do and what did you find yeah so we sort of have gone not away from the physicality but more interested in looking at what happens when you have to learn a new skill and drumming is a really potent stimulus to the brain in terms of it's multi-limbed you've got timing tempo and rhythm and volume so the brain has to handle a lot of information So we were challenged at the Cheltenham Science Festival to say, okay, can you demonstrate that the brain adapts as a consequence of learning to drum? And so we proved that, we demonstrated that. And the next question was, well, does that influence behavior in any way? So we got some money from the Waterloo Foundation, a charity to look at drumming and autism. And the latest paper that's come out is basically that work, which demonstrates that you do see changes within the human brain within the autistic brain following learning to drum. And we've captured qualitative information to demonstrate that that carries over into enhanced social and emotional well-being, which for us is really exciting going from an MRI scanner to a classroom, for example. Can you give me some concrete examples of what you're seeing in the brain and what you're seeing in the classroom? So when we did the MRI study, we were originally challenged does the brain adapt when you're looking to learn a new skill? And the unique feature about drumming is that it's multiple limb and you've got these constraints of time and rhythm and tempo. So within the brain, it's almost like a game that you're never, ever going to complete. So, for example, compulsivity, the mechanisms of trying to ensure that compulsivity is under control so kids not just reacting and shouting. We've seen that the regions of the brain has been adapted so we call it fine-tuning so the brain becomes fine-tuned but then we're also picking up from the class teachers that there is less compulsivity and even parents outside of the school curriculum are reporting that as well in the home environment so a really interesting link for us is that link from theory to practice and we're demonstrating that in the work. One of the suggestions coming out of this project is that this is something that should be done more widely in schools. Do we have enough evidence to support that at this stage? Absolutely. We've run the project in schools in Liverpool, in Bedford, in Sussex, and the common response back is it creates such an incredible positive vibe in the school. It's a fun activity. And if you're a creative brain rather than a scientific brain, it can be a lonely place, I think, the curriculum. When I've chatted with head teachers, one of the big issues that they've got since COVID is actually getting kids to return back into school. So the only way they're going to come back into school, it could be argued, is to have fun, but to learn at the same time. And I often say to colleagues, if we'd developed a pill that gave you the same outcome as drumming, we'd be multimillionaires overnight. It's interesting to see how, you know... uh a mind can evolve. Uh, the simplest strum rudiment seems so difficult at first, and 
I mean, it's true of any instrument, you know, but, but drumming may be the first instrument, maybe it's very basic for, can be interpreted, you know, uh, in various ways. It's just that, just as uh, something that's positive. So my husband a year or two ago said we should get a drum kit for my son mm -hmm. and my response was over my dead body. Do you think I need to reconsider that? Well, we're here to talk about the attributes of drumming, so uh, we're obviously we're saying it's a positive thing, so I wouldn't say to uh, discourage that. Although one of my role models, a guy called Hal Blaine, when that question is brought up, He's a bit of a joker, and they said, uh, you know, a, a mom, mom's comes to you and says, uh, you know, my son uh, wants to become a drummer. What do you think about that? And he says, cut his hands off. <laughs> I think I was worried more about <laughs> the noise rather than anything else. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if your son is motivated to want to play the drums, the best thing to do is to get him uh, the electronic drum kit. You know, you don't have to worry about the neighbors. You know, you can play with headphones on. That was so interesting, Natasha. Marcus and Clem are gathering evidence that drumming can help children with autism. Why do we think that might work? So autism is a developmental disability that we don't really fully understand and can actually encompass quite a wide range of problems. But the hallmarks often include problems with social communications and often emotional regulation is very poor. Anger and anxiety can be big, big problems. And one of the things that has long been known to help promote cognitive and emotional well-being is rhythm-based musical training. Um, it seems to enhance higher order cognition and motor control. I mean, in other words, learning the drums seems to require attention on the temporal accuracy of drumming as well as inhibitory control. And so that's the theory. And Marcus mentioned they've been gathering MRI evidence for this. Can you tell me a bit more about how they've been doing that? So Marcus has been looking at whether drum training has an impact on behaviour and brain function in autistic adolescents. You know, in other words, what changes drumming are bringing to the brain itself? And they took a group of participants with no drumming experience at all. They had two 45-minute lessons each week over just two months and then they had MRI scans before and after. And alongside this, there were behavioural observations. And they actually found that improvements in drumming were associated with a significant reduction in hyperactivity and inattention difficulties in only eight weeks. Most fascinating of all, I think, is that the MRI showed stronger connectivity in the brain areas that are responsible for inhibition control. Um, also on the monitoring of action outcomes. So that's, you know, looking for the beats coming. And then also they saw strengthening in areas of self-regulation. So this is, you know, quite a remarkable finding and really suggests that drumming has the potential to help autistic children overcome these hyperactivity and attention deficits. And other work also suggests that this might work more broadly in kids with emotional and behavioural difficulties too. I mean, ADHD, for example, is another disorder which might benefit from this sort of training. All that said, it is a small study. There's only 36 individuals, but I think we can be optimistic about it because it does fit within a body of research that supports the role of drumming in emotional well-being. 
And it seems as though, even if it doesn't have the strength of the connection that we'd like it to, there are very few downsides of taking up drumming, right? It's good for the brain, it's good for physical health, and according to Clem, at least, you're less likely to become a serial killer if you take it up. Yeah, absolutely. There do seem to be very few downsides. We often think of musical training in children, they have to learn the piano or the violin. Well, you know, actually, maybe drumming is going to be hugely beneficial for a certain cohort of kids, and that's exactly why. Clem and Marcus are arguing that drumming should be rolled out in schools more widely. And I think it makes sense. And I'm also thinking maybe I should pick up a pair of drumsticks as well, if not for my emotional well-being, but also because I really suck. I don't know. It sounded very impressive. Could you handle it if your if your kid started playing the drums at home? As a parent, I, th- I think I'm really horrified by the idea of the noise, let's be clear. <laughs> what about the uh, the digital drum kits and headphones that Clem suggested? Well, th- this is certainly something I should consider. So, Natasha, before we move on to the next activity that you went through, let's take a step back and talk a bit about science exhibitions in general. They're something that we see a lot of in the summer months, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I'm pretty happy about that. They're flourishing all over the world. Why are they important? Look, science is at the heart of everything we do these days. It's why we can build bridges, send rockets to the moon, find vaccines and drugs for horrible diseases. But many schools teaching young children just don't have great science provision. It's difficult and expensive to provide. So these festivals are a way for young people to really engage and get excited about science and meet the people who might inspire them to take up a career in science one day. And the Royal Society is sort of known as this centre of scientific excellence. Does it also have a history of communicating science as well as encouraging it? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, it's a National Academy of Science. It traces back to 1660. It's an incredibly old institution. And it's been throwing its doors open every summer to the public for about 30 years. Although the public engagement work of the society traces back all the way back to 1778, when Joseph Banks started something called the Conversaciones. And that's where fellows would show off their latest research and breakthroughs. And I guess other science exhibitions are available, right? It's not just the Royal Society that puts them on. Yes, absolutely. There'll be a science festival somewhere near you, wherever you are in the world. Um, There's a big one in Edinburgh, which is one of the largest in Europe, another one in New York. And they show us that science is of enormous cultural value and what an important role they play in our society. So do go and look one up and take part somewhere near you. Fantastic. We'll hear more of what science exhibitions have to offer uh, very shortly. I'm very intrigued about what other little snippets you'll bring us. But first, Natasha, here in Britain, we've had plenty of cold and rainy August days already to keep people inside with only The Economist for entertainment. So what would you recommend to our listeners from some of our recent coverage? Well, I've always been intrigued by this challenge of how you create a circular economy, one that's you know more sustainable, but from where we are today, because we have this enormous challenge, don't we? And we ran a story a few weeks ago about a new high-tech method being used by scrapyards to recycle more cars. And the story reports basically a car assembly line in reverse that can reuse or recycle about 96% of the vehicle. Well worth a look and a little read. Well, listeners can read that and much, much more by taking out a subscription to The Economist. Get your first month of digital content for free by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. 
There's also a new feature that subscribers can enjoy on The Economist's app. Check out our new Podcasts tab at the bottom of your smartphone screen to listen to all of our audio journalism much more simply. Natasha and I will be back in a moment. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Today on Babbage, my colleague Natasha Loder has been exploring some unexpected ways that technology can benefit health at the Royal Society's Summer Science Exhibition in London. So, Natasha, what's the next thing you want to test me on? Well, Gilad, I want you to guess what you're listening to here. And you'll need to make sure you're listening through headphones. Good morning. I'm here in front of you. Or maybe I'm close to your right ear. Maybe I'm here. Or here. Or again, I could be here. Or here. Or here. Maybe here. Or on the other side. Or back in front of you. Okay, this sounds like you accidentally gatecrashed a ventriloquist's convention. Very funny. Um, So I'm listening to what's called 3D virtual audio. I was standing in front of a speaker. They were trying to get me to locate where the sound was coming from. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's going to... It's it's arriving. Okay, yeah, I can hear some crackling. And where is it? Over there. Uh, To my right. And now? It's moving. Over there. Now to the left. And now it feels like it's behind me almost, or in my head. Yeah. So this is the idea, that we are controlling the sound filled in your ear and making you believe that the sound is where it is not. Yeah, the the crackling is moving all around me. It's kind of spooky because it's actually coming from one speaker in front of me. Try this. I'm here in front of you. Or maybe I'm closer. Oh, that's spooky. There's a little whisper in my ear saying, I'm here. Yeah, that's really super creepy. Okay, so that's the concept. What was amazing was how this speaker was just essentially able to project the sound in all sorts of locations around me. But explain to me why I heard a man whispering into your ears from different distances. This is research being done by Imperial College in London. And the idea is that this virtual audio challenge is helping research how we individually process sound. And the aim of this project is to improve hearing for people with sensory impairment. I asked Lorenzo Piccinali from Imperial exactly what the results can show. We are here to present our work in acoustic immersive audio. So immersive audio is just what we experience in everyday life. So you hear sounds that come from different directions, different distances, they move around. So these spatial attributes of sound is what we try to simulate. 
You can simulate them like in the cinema with tens of loudspeakers around you. At the end, we have two ears, so why not go indirectly there? So the idea is we try to trick the brain to believe that there are sounds around you, even though it's just a pair of headphones. And why are you doing this? Well, for many reasons. It has a lot of application. Well, the first is the core science. We are interested to understand how it works. Do you ever imagine a future where you might be able to create that sort of 3D experience for people who have hearing loss of some kind? Yeah, very much so. So when you use a hearing aid, normally your cues are very altered. The hearing aid sits outside your ear. Anyway, if you have a hearing loss, you lose a lot of resolution in certain frequencies. And so you have a very impaired perception of space. And so, yes, some research is looking specifically at trying to recover this and to restore the cues that someone has lost from a spatial perspective. Now, this is important because when we understand speech, for example, let's say here is just me and you, you talk to me very clear, there's some noise, it's not too problematic. But if you were in a restaurant with a lot more talkers and uh, you maybe were a little bit far away, then for me to be able to understand you, I need to also be able to localize where you are and where all the masking noises are. If I can't localize you, I can't really understand you fully, or at least I can't exploit the advantages of having two ears. And that's why people with hearing aids have so much difficulty in restaurants. That's one of the reasons why they have so much difficulties in restaurants. So there is a psychoacoustics principle, it's called the cocktail party effect, which is related also to restaurants. You have multiple speakers, one is a target, the other one are maskers. If they were all located in one position, which is physically impossible, we wouldn't really understand much, but they are spaced around you. Therefore, our hearing system, thanks to the fact that we have two ears, we have a head in between, can determine the position of all the maskers, or at least discriminate between the target and the maskers, and allow you to still understand speech in a very difficult condition. If you have a hearing loss and hearing aids, you lose, or at least you get much worse in this ability. That's brilliant. Shall we have a little uh, look at your booth? We can have a look at the booth, yeah, by all means. So inside this little booth, a dark booth, we take a 3D scan of someone's ear at the outer part of the ear, so your half of the head and the ear. So the idea there is that we can learn the relationship between the morphological features of your ear and head and the way the sound gets modified in different ways depending on the person. So everybody, uh, due to the size of the head, the shoulders and the ear, hears slightly differently. So what we want to do is to understand how these morphological features change the sound you hear and to be able then to simulate it maybe taking just a picture of your ear. Okay, so I'm in a tiny little enclosed space, sort of black curtains all around me and lights that are going to take a 3D picture of uh, the side of my head and more importantly the shape of my ear. My name is Julie Meyer and I'm a postdoc in the exit team. It's going to be a flashing bright light so <laughs> it's better to close the eyes. Um, oh, okay because it's going to be flashing and please don't move. All right, that's done. So this is a point cloud generated. Uh, it's basically just points. And from that, we create meshes. And that's going to be the model you're going to see next. So what we're looking at is a sort of a blue and black picture of my ear in points. The computer's going to create a 3D mesh image, which is going to allow you to work on it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not sure I want my ear on the internet, but there you go. Oh my God, I've got like a lump. 
<laughs> so any dark areas that we saw in the previous picture is going to be closed because we forced it to be watertight model. And that's the version we used in our simulations. I have to say, my ear is incredibly weird looking. Actually, maybe just ears weird, full stop. You spend a lot of time looking at ears, I would imagine, every day. Is that a particularly unusually weird one? (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) Usually we actually take the whole head plus a bit of the shoulders uh, because everything is important up to the torso. Of course, one ear is... We would need more, but it can be used for research. So you will find my ear useful for research? Yes, most likely. fabulous. Yeah. So are you happy for everyone attending this exhibition to look at your ear now? Now it's displaying here on the screen. Um, do, do you want the honest answer or do you want the magnanimous, uh, you know, health editor of the economist the answer? Absolutely fine. I'm so glad. Do you know, I have done this so many times in the course of my job. I've been sampled, scanned. I have been sequenced many times. In fact, I'm sure there's not much of me that medical science doesn't know about. So when you take a photograph or a a picture of my ear, how do you actually relate that to what I'm hearing? Well, in technical terms, we use some modelling techniques. So from the picture, we create a 3D model. And then from the 3D model, we use some special techniques. In this case, it's a technique that is called boundary element methods. So we just try to predict how the sound from a sound source will get to your eardrum and the acoustic interactions that it will have around your head. Now, we look at what gets to the eardrum. Then from the eardrum to your brain, there is a whole other chain of processes which we don't deal with. Because what we are aiming to do is just put on a pair of headphones and make you believe that sound is in a position where it's not. That's all fascinating. And there seem to be some really practical applications for this research. What did you, though, find most interesting about the work that's being done on virtual audio? I think it was the sort of very creepily realistic sensation of someone being right next to me when they weren't really there. I can see it would have a lot of applications in games, for example. But I I guess I hope the technology will be of use for people with hearing loss, for example, to have better awareness of where sounds are coming from. You know, some people have hearing loss in one ear and there's lots of kind of practical applications of the technology. I'm sure we can think in many spheres. Okay, Natasha, you've been showing how drumming can be good for our brains. You've listened to some, quite frankly, creepy virtual audio. What's the last thing you want to demonstrate for us? Well, this final project wasn't one that I was expecting, so have a guess what I'm doing here. Your challenge is that these lights around the sides will glow one at a time, and you need to drive to each one. When you get to each one, once you've got the head lined up, we'll move to the next one, and you're going to be timed through the whole thing. So your first light's over there. Let me know when you're ready, and I'll start the timer. Uh, which one's forward? i just give it a go. You ready? Uh, ready. And go. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just showing myself That's how close enough. fabulously bad. And head to the red light on the side. <laughs> All right, my producers here are in hysterics. No laughing, ladies. Is it harder than it looks? Slightly, slightly closer. Yep, that's close enough. And last one. Should. Oh, I can go sideways. I like that. <laughs> oh, that's forward. Oh, wrong way. And then just get it to rotate. There you go. 
You did it in one minute, 39 seconds. Wow, that's not too bad. That I thought is, it's yes. your fourth position so far today. Fourth position. Okay, um, yeah, you can wipe that smirk off your face, lady. So you're driving something with caterpillar tracks that's quite responsive. Either a tank or some sort of interplanetary rover? Oh my God, that's brilliant. Yes, I am driving a Mars rover, although obviously it's in London, not on Mars. I'm standing in front of a display of what looks like the surface of Mars and I have the controls of what looks like a Mars rover and I've been given a very complicated challenge. Could Natasha get a job driving Mars rover? Uh, You probably could, but it takes, when you're actually sending signals up to Mars, it can take up to 20 minutes to get it to do one change of motion. So they have to set it up like hours ahead. So it actually takes more than hours instead of minutes. So I don't fancy my chances on Mars, I will be honest. That's amazing. I'm very jealous. But What's the link to health here? Well, it is a bit of a tease because this exhibit was about Mars, but it kind of isn't. It's an exhibit from the universities of Edinburgh, Nottingham and Southampton, and they're exploring whether the technology that they're using for the search for life on Mars can help detect diseases within our own bodies. Now, on NASA's Perseverance rover, which is roaming on the surface of Mars right now, There are lots of extremely clever advanced instruments, and one of them is called a Raman spectrometer. What is that, I hear you ask? Well, it's a scientific instrument whose workings can be explained by a singing bowl. Notice is that if I change the bowl, the size is bigger. pitch is different. The, the, the quality of the sound changes. That was a higher pitch, this is a lower pitch. And what we're trying to demonstrate here is the fact that you can apply a force, a mallet in this case, and get it to vibrate at its natural frequency. And the natural frequencies change depending on the size of the bowl. So this is a sound version of a technique which we use, which is called Raman spectroscopy, where you sh- now instead shine light on a substance and it gives different colours out depending on what the substance might be. So that can help us identify the signatures of life molecules as is being done on Mars. NASA's Perseverance rover is actually hunting for life or looking for signs of life. And as we utilise in our research, which is to identify molecules of disease, what might constitute disease. So we can identify that this material is changing and therefore we can identify early signs of disease. That's the idea. That was Sumit Mahajan of the University of Southampton. The Raman spectrometer allows the rover to determine the fine-scale mineralogy and is looking for organic compounds on the red planet. But Sumit says this kit can also have uses closer to home. They're using the Raman spectroscopy to look for organic materials, but they actually think that they'll be able to use it to detect different tissues by essentially bouncing light off different tissues. We're working on taking these technologies to the clinic by overcoming the challenge of getting light deeper into the body. And you personally work on humans rather than Mars. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what exactly this technology is, this light technology, and how you're applying it. So the technology is called uh, Raman spectroscopy. And the idea which we are trying to use is that visible light doesn't penetrate deep into the body. But if you have red light, it kind of diffuses into the body a little bit. And now what we do is we try to take it even redder. 
where our eyes cannot see, so that actually the vibrations which emit light are in this regime such that they allow us to see deep inside the body. But also, we simultaneously use technologies which we have borrowed from astronomy, where we reconstruct these signals and create images by making photons or the light go where we want them to. And so give us those signatures from deep inside the body. So would it be fair to say that the light you're shining into the body is actually making it resonate in the way that the bowl is? That is exactly the idea. So the bowls are making the sound equivalent and what we do is the light equivalent. We shine light and make the molecules vibrate in their natural resonance frequency. And how deep can this really, really special red light get into the body? That's, that's a brilliant question. So currently, the world record for deeper penetration by light is a few millimetres, and that's what we are able to achieve. We want to go to centimetres and 10 centimetres, and the vision is that you put your hand in into a scanner, and the light goes in to a few millimetres and tells you where your cartilage might have worn off. So we are, we are working on a disease called osteoarthritis, which is, uh, which is the disease of a cartilage. Every one of us, at some point of time, if we live long enough, is going to get it. And what happens is the cartilage starts degrading, but by the time we show up in the clinic, it's already too late. So our technology, if it penetrates deeper, can diagnose diseases early on, 20 years perhaps before the disease manifests itself. We're already using LED lights on our watches to pick up things like heart rate and also blood pressure. Is it possible that one day we may be having some kind of Raman spectroscopy device on our watches to do something a little cleverer? All these big companies have projects where they want to incorporate Raman spectroscopy in portable wearable devices. So indeed you're right, I mean lasers currently they are large and fit on a bench top but in our project itself we're trying to make them small form factors so that they can be portable and be carried around and made affordable as well so that exactly that kind of vision which you're projecting can be implemented. Wow, that's uh, an incredible thing to look forward to. Thank you so much. You're welcome, very welcome. So I've always wanted to try one of these. I've got this incredibly heavy brass bowl and a kind of small wooden stick with a club at the end. And I'm just supposed to run the club around the edge of the bowl. I'm not even hit it. Yeah, I think this way. Oh, that way? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You have to kind of tune in to the frequency. Yes, it, start, it started actually. And as, as you hear it vibrate, you basically carry on at that frequency. Yeah, exactly. Just Okay, so sweet. I started rubbing and there wasn't yeah. anything happening. And you have to carry on at the same frequency so that it's consistent and the sound keeps coming out at the same frequency. If you do not match the frequency, it will lose its sound. So it will not vibrate at its natural frequency. So, Natasha, that sounds really promising. And, of course, we see medical devices improve all the time to the great benefit of society. But I always get a particular thrill when innovations in one field, such as space exploration, can improve another. It gives you another reason to care about scientific research in one discipline because you don't know where it might benefit. Yeah, the idea is to take this technology and to look at whether you can tell different tissues apart without using x-rays, which obviously bring harmful radiation. And, you know, the idea is that you might be able to diagnose and monitor bone diseases in older people. It is a work in progress. That's the nature of science. And there will be challenges getting light delivered to where you need it. There are barriers to be overcome, your own skin, for example. But it does sound very interesting and promising. Natasha, you presented some fascinating research from the exhibition, but did you have a fun day out? Yeah, it was a great day. It was like a vacation for my brain. 
Thank you so much for bringing a little bit of a science festival into the Babbage studio today. Thank you so much for having me. Our thanks also to Clem Burke, Marcus Smith, Lorenzo Piccinali, Sumit Mahajan, and all of the other researchers that Natasha spoke to at the Royal Society. And thank you for listening to Babbage. This week's show was produced by Jason Hoskin, Alicia Burrell, and Daniela Raz, with mixing and sound design by James Stickland. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Gilad Amit, and I'll be back with you again next week. This is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.